Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends. So thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to The New Man, Beyond the Macho Jerk and the New Age Wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lanier. you wish you had a tool to make anxiety go away? Do you believe your calling in life has to pay the bills? And what's the easiest way to improve your life without having to earn more money or change your relationship status? Emotional Equations author Chip Conley is here to discuss some logical ways to deal with the most confusing part of your life. We're talking about emotions. Welcome to The New Man. Today, we're talking with Chip Conley. He's the founder of Joie de Vivre Hotels and the author of Peak and the book we're just going to be discussing today, Emotional Equations. Chip, welcome. Oh, it's great to be with you, Trip. Thank you. So, I, right off the bat, I, you've taken two really confusing topics for people, emotions and mathematics, and somehow made them useful. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me start by saying I was not a math major. I <laughs> didn't even enjoy math, but math is basically about relationships. It's the relationship of numbers. And when you sort of take a step back and say, wow, math is about relationships. Could it be the, the relationship of emotions? That was my basic premise when I started looking at this. And what I didn't know at the time was that there was about 30 years of history uh, in the psychology academic field, the academic piece of uh, psychology, that it focused on you know the, the fact that there may be in fact equations just like there's uh there's a color wheel right um you know red plus blue equals purple well there's maybe an emotions wheel as too and if you combine certain emotions you get a third emotion and that's that's really the premise behind it and it's to help us understand the ingredients of what makes certain emotions in our life well i, I like that because when i talk to guys if i'm coaching or i get emails from them they're basically trying to avoid their emotions they they're just like if i can make more money have more sex or you know be doing better than the guy down the block then i won't have anything to worry about so i won't really have to pay attention to this emotional world but how are guys responding to emotional equations well, it's been very interesting. When I when I first proposed the book to the publisher, and uh, they said, "Well, you know, most books like this are are you know seventy to eighty percent of the audience is women. Uh, a book on self help or, or emotions." And I said, 
beware. This this book, especially with having equations in the in the you know, on the cover, might open up more men to it. At the time, we didn't realize that the recession that we were in was going to be as prolonged as it has been, and in fact has been more punishing to men than women in terms of what you, if you look at the unemployment rate for men versus women in the country, it's a good bit higher for men. So I think what's happened, uh, what we've seen, uh, you know, based upon if you go to Amazon and look at emotional equations, you'll see like 65 different reviews on there, and over 60% of the reviews are from men. Now that mm. doesn't happen. <laughs> so what is it that is striking men about this? Well, I think part of it is that when we're living through an era of a lot of external chaos. All of us sort of yearn for some kind of internal logic. And for men, you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of logic that they want to have around their emotions. And sometimes they think, you know, stop thinking about their emotions because the emotions don't seem logical and they just don't want to deal with them. But what this, what this book has helped to do is to help make some sense with some you know, intellectual ballast to it. I didn't, just didn't make up a bunch of emotions. I spent about uh, two years in, you know, with a bunch of uh, specialists in the various emotions that I worked on, and, and to create a sense of some clarity about what are the ingredients for anxiety or happiness or despair or meaning in our lives. And, and by doing that, it helps, I think, men especially to make sense of something that previously felt like it was just a confusing mess. Okay. Well, let's dive in. Let's talk about anxiety because there are guys that are out there struggling. I'm really aware of it. And they're, whether they, you know, their job, they have a job or they don't have a job. They don't, they're, they're kind of wondering if they ever going to be able to find their calling in life. There's all of this stuff out there and it's getting in the way of them just being able to enjoy what they have right now. And it, and it seems to boil down to this equation uh, around anxiety. Yeah. So walk us through anxiety. What's happening when the guy out there just can't seem to just relax and enjoy what he has yeah. because he's so anxious about what may happen. Yeah, there's a, anxiety is a, it's frankly the most prevalent emotion in most organizations in the U.S. today. And there's really two primary ingredients uh, uh, with respect to anxiety. It's what you don't know and what you can't control. And so it's very future-oriented, and it tends to be related to something, some future danger that you think is coming. And the what you don't know piece is sort of uncertainty. And the what you can't control is the powerlessness. So the equation is anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness, because frankly, the two together are combustible. Mm. So what do you do with that? If you're, so if you're a man, a woman, anybody, you know, what do you do with that equation? That's the key in terms of the practicality of the book, is how do you actually make it real in your life? Well, the, the recommendation I have on anxiety is to think about the thing that's making you anxious. Uh, spend 15 or 20 minutes uh, doing this exercise. Think about what it is, and then create four columns. Column one is, what is it that I do know about this thing? Let's say it, let's, let's say it has to do with thinking you're going to lose your job. Okay. Um, so column one is, uh, you know, what is it that I do know about this? You know, what's the, the health of the company, my position, you know, in terms of, you know, is, it, it doesn't seem like it's valued in the organization, my relationship with my boss. Column two would be, what is it that I don't know? You may not know if it's a private company. You may have no idea what the finances of the company are. Column three might be um, what is it that you uh, have some influence over. And then column four would be what is it that you have no influence over. So column one, two relate to uncertainty or certainty. Mm-hmm. What, don't, what do I know? And then column two is what don't I know? Column three is what can I influence? Column four is what can't I influence? So those three, column three and four are about powerlessness. When people do this exercise, it's fascinating uh, because 75% of us, when we take this exercise and do it, 
75% of us have more things under columns one and three, which are the good columns, the assets, than we have under columns two and four. So what we have a tendency to do when we're anxious about something is we get very fixated on columns two and four, and we actually sometimes diminish what we have in column one or three. And then you may have something under column two, let's say, which is, what don't I know? You might look at something and say, well, you know, who could I ask? You know, if, if I, I think that layoffs, I think my boss knows that layoffs are coming. That's what, what I, I don't know is if there's economic layoffs coming for the company, and my boss probably knows. Well, who could you ask? I guess you could ask your boss. Now, many of us don't want to do that. Many of us don't want to actually take the step of, like, asking the person who we think knows. But there was a study done a few years ago that was fascinating that showed that when a group of people had the choice between getting an electric shock now that's twice as painful versus an electric shock that they could get in the next 24 hours, but randomly, but also half as painful, would you choose the more painful shock now and get it over with? Or would you choose to have the less painful shock but have it happen randomly sometime in the next 24 hours when you're not expecting it. And two-thirds of people chose the painful shock now. That's because in many ways, psychological pain is worse than physical pain, and we just don't want to have to think about it. So sometimes the best thing for you to do is to go ask the person who does know. Or if you're the person who does know, if you're the leader and you know that layoffs are coming, rather than having everybody stewing in their anxiety juices for a while, figure out a way to communicate it as early as possible because anxiety is contagious. And if you let people just sort of stew in it for a while, it's going to be a really ugly stew. You know, there's something really powerful in this when we realize, wait a second, there's something I can do. And, and that's where you take this this other piece out of it. You take the, the powerlessness out of it. And it's just such a, a powerful thing, obviously. Um, and I, I actually ran this, I did this with a client the other day. I was like, all right, let's try this. Let's go through this, this process. And, and something about somewhere in there, as we were going through it, something shifted in his energy. He was just like, oh, like I felt this like, oh, well, well now I know what to yeah. do. And it was like, he just, it was all right there. He just needed to see it out on the paper and realize, wait a second, I have a choice here. Thank you. No, that's exactly right, Trip. I mean, it's fascinating. There's a there's a neuroscientist from L.A. Uh, UCLA uh, named Matt Lieberman, and he's proven that uh, when you're going through a bad emotional state, the absolute best thing you can do is to actually name what you're feeling, which is like what we don't do. It's like you're feeling it all, and you don't want to you don't pretend it's not there. But instead, what Matt Lieberman has shown as a neuroscientist is that actually saying, "I feel anxious right now." Uh, takes you from the amygdala, which is the base of the brain, the sort of caveman part of your brain, and puts you in the prefrontal cortex, which is a more rational reasoning part of your brain. And why is that important? Well, actually, we are better able to make decisions and better decisions from that healthier, sort of newer part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. He's actually been able to show that we lose 10 to 15 IQ points when we make decisions from that amygdala part of our brain. So literally just naming the emotion uh, it actually gives you 10 to 15 IQ points back for the sake of making decisions. And that's worth, that's worth something. Yeah. Yeah. And especially I just, you know, to name it out there for those guys, because a lot of us don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to admit that I'm even having a problem sometimes. My wife and I were having a problem the other day and I didn't want to admit that I was pissed, but just even doing right. that was like, okay, now, now we can do something. But uh, you know, until mm -hmm. I wanted to name it or until the guy out there wants to admit that he's scared that something's going on, something, somehow we feel like if we name it, we're going to get consumed by it. But the, 
The opposite is true. Once we name it, now we're in a powerful position. Now we have uh, the ability to respond. Absolutely. Now, well, let's talk about the nervous system here because we do store, we get anxious and it happens all over our body and we get sore and, and cranky and everything. Is there is there a component of the body uh, that, that goes along with this in, in your understanding? Well, one of the things that I've said to people as, as they're trying to understand the emotional equations and how to understand what, it, what, what they're actually feeling at the moment, because sometimes we just don't, I mean, you know, I don't know about you, Trip, but I, I never went to emotions school. Right. <laughs> no one ever sort of said, okay, here's how you learn about what an emotion feels like. No, mm-hmm. no, I mean, you sort of learn it from your parents a little bit, but mm-hmm. maybe not that well. So one of the first ways to understand it is to try to actually uh, get clear about where it's happening in your body. And it happens, you know, it may happen in different places for different people, but there are some common themes about where certain emotions uh, rest in certain parts of your body. And Louise Hay has written lots and lots of books about this. And for those who are um, interested in learning more about her work, she's, written, she's uh, very well respected at, in terms of looking at how the body tells you an awful lot about your emotions. For me, when it comes to anxiety, uh, what, when I know the anxiety is happening, it's usually happening in my gut. Um, and our gut actually has a lot, you know, we think our, our brains are all up, up in our head, but our, a lot of our brains are in our gut. And so when I'm feeling anxious, I may feel it in my neck and my shoulders because they actually get a little tense. But when I feel the churning where it's real serious anxiety, it's in my gut. Mm. And that's when I can sort of say that's different. And when I'm feeling lonely, I don't feel loneliness in the gut mm-hmm. or when I'm feeling um, angry, anger, I feel in my, for some reason, I feel it in my 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 fists, I feel like I want to punch something. Right. I feel it in my arms. I feel like I want to lash out. So it's interesting. Over the course of time, I've gotten a better sense of if there's something in me, I can't identify what the emotion is. If I can identify what the physical feeling is in my body, it's sometimes, it, sometimes it's the doorway to understanding what emotion it is that I'm feeling. And then once I understand that, that's the next step toward understanding, okay, what, is there an equation that goes with that? There's 18 different equations in the book Emotional Equations. Each each one vetted by um, a series of um, psychologists and mathematicians. So, you know, these are these generally speaking. The good news is the book's been out three months, and there's nobody who's knocked on my door and said, "Oh my God, you're a quack." <laughs> you come up with all these equations; they don't make any sense. Not one person has said that, and the book is a New York Times bestseller. So, there must be something positive in terms of these equations, because no, I, that's the, that was my biggest fear. I mean, I'm just to be honest. My biggest fear is the book comes out, it does well, and then people look at me like, who the hell are you? Right. Um, and, and it's true because I'm not a psychologist. I have mm-hmm. an honorary doctorate in psychology, partly because I've written a bunch of books on um, psychology and business, but I was a CEO for 24 years. And mm. so my experience of understanding emotions and psychology is practical, you know, my own, my own experience, but I've spent an awful lot of time reading books, spending time with the sort of the legends in the field of psychology and they have really welcomed me. And that's the best part of the book is the fact that this is me as a, as sort of just a, a, you know, an armchair shrink helping people understand what the world's best and smartest psychologists know, but putting it in a format that actually is, is great for the layperson. Yeah. I think that's what I appreciate about it too. There's a bit of a street quality to it. of just like, it's how yeah. guys can talk to one another and Hey, well, here's what's really going on. And I think if it was written by the, the psychologist, we wouldn't be able to understand it. So I think you've done a great job of bringing it to our level, wherever we are. So. Great. Thank um, you. Well, let's talk about calling because that's a big one. A lot of people that listen to The New Man are wanting to find this calling in their life. They don't want to settle for some 95 wage slave kind of thing, whatever that may mean. 
they, they have this dream that there's some place they're really supposed to be engaged and really giving to the world and then receiving that you you've had a few you've had a couple and then mm-hmm. you outgrew one and then had quite an ordeal tell us about that yeah well let me say this that having a calling in life can happen outside of your work you don't have to have your work be the only form of your calling you could be being a parent could be one form of being a calling being mm-hmm. a marathon runner could be a, a calling being a political activist could be a calling um so you know there's a lot of ways we can have a calling uh, I've been lucky. Yes, I have had twice in my career life, my work life, um, where I found my calling. Initially, it was starting this boutique hotel company, calling it Joie de Vivre, which means joy of life. And for 24 years being CEO and 25, it's, and it's now been 25 years ago that I started the company. For at least 20, 22 of those 25 years, I really did see it as my calling. I loved it on so many levels. And what is a calling for a person? Let's define our terms first. Because sometimes if you look at, uh, at two different people and one is a workaholic and one is living a calling, on the external side of things, they can actually look very similar. What's different between a workaholic tendency and someone who's living a calling is what's happening on the inside. Okay. Um, when someone's in a workaholic state, they are in essence running away from something else. And it's a form of addiction. It's a form of distracting themselves from something inside themselves. And then there's a compulsive quality to it such that you really have a hard time not doing it. When someone's living a calling, the internal state of what it feels like is actually quite blissful. It's not compulsive. It's actually a place of, you may work really long hours, but it's coming from a place of being fueled by it and being able to very much look within and see this is just part of my purpose in life. And so when someone's getting to that state, it's great. For me personally, I found that in creating a company and growing it, and I loved it, and I loved the company being a role model for other companies. But later in my life, just two or three years ago, when the, the economy was going south, and I had, I had friends who were committing suicide, and I was really desperate and depressed myself, and I had a flatline experience myself on stage when I was giving a speech. I really had to wake up. And hold on, I got to interrupt you. You, know, you. you literally did, your heart stopped. That wasn't just like some, yeah. you know, like metaphor yeah. for you, like <laughs> not no, having I, a good I, speech. I, I had a broken ankle. I, there's a guy named Gavin Newsom, who's the, who was the mayor of San Francisco, now the lieutenant governor of California. I was at this bachelor party at AT&T Ballpark. He got 20 guys together. We, he took over where the San Francisco Giants play, and we played baseball under the lights at nighttime. It was, you know, it's nice to be friends with the mayor. Yeah. And I, I hit a ball way out to the, the warning track and tried to make it into a, a triple, and I slid into third and broke my ankle. But I didn't know that I had a, I cut my leg as well, and I got a bacterial infection. Long story short, the I ended up on stage in St. Louis, and at the end of the speech on crutches, I fortunately sat down and then went unconscious. And then seven minutes later, when the paramedics had showed up, thankfully, um, I my heart stopped, and it, wow. and for the next ninety minutes, it just kept stopping. So that was the moment, the sort of like the wake up call for the hotelier, the wake up <laughs> call that sort of tell, told me that I was ready for um, my second calling. Mm-hmm. I loved. I loved the idea of writing and speaking. I was no longer in love with a calling, the calling of being the CEO of the company. The company had grown to 3,500 employees. It was just, it was a massive organization now. And I'm more of an entrepreneur and more of a creative person. And you have to sort of get back sometimes as an entrepreneur to what was it that drew you to doing this in the first place. And what I recognized is that it was the freedom. Freedom was what was fueling me in the callings spirit, not necessarily being the leader of a large organization. And so I, I really had to, over the next two years, while I was writing this book, figure out how to 
sell the majority uh, interest in my company and get out of being a CEO and the icon of the company. And I did that. And I'm really proud of it. I did it quite deftly at a very bad time in the economy, especially for a hotel company. So um, now I live the calling. In fact, uh, you know, in, in the book, I talk about the fact that after I had my flatline experience, I felt this need to go give a speech a day and a half later. And it was not need from compulsion. It was really, I was in St. I was in St. Louis and I was supposed to give a speech to 140 entrepreneurs in Houston. My father, who is an entrepreneur, was sitting next to me in the, you know, in the hospital room and I said they can't find anything wrong with me. I want to go and give that half-day workshop to the entrepreneurs in, in Houston. Wow. And my dad looked looked at me and said, "Are you crazy? <laughs> You're flatlined." And I said, "No, I really I you've never actually given you've never heard me give a speech to a bunch of business people, you know, or do a workshop." You sit in the back of the room. I'll be in the front of the room. I'll be sitting on the chair. So, I mean, I still had my, my broken ankle. And, you know, keep an eye on me to make sure I'm okay. And let's try it. And so we did it. And four hours later, and on, we were flying back to California. My dad said to me, I, Chip, I came to St. Louis, you know, making sure that you wouldn't die. And I come back from Houston now seeing how you want to live. And he sort of had seen my calling. Mm. He saw that my... Being in a place where I could be um, a writer, speaker, and maybe sort of a, somebody who helps be provocative in the business world about how to think about things differently is something that was really lighting me up. And that's what you know, a calling does. It fuels you and a job you know, depletes you on an average day. I think that's it. Well, first, I just have to, you had to be able to look at that and own, hey, wait a second, this isn't working anymore. Um, and a lot of us will be like, whether we're in relationships with it that aren't serving us anymore or whatever it is that we're doing, it's sometimes it's really hard to admit to ourselves, wait a second, this used to be really great. It's no longer great. I need to be open to the fact that there's something else that wants to emerge, but it's not going to emerge unless I I make room for it and and walk away from this. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And the question I, I like to ask myself and I ask other people is when it comes to their relationship with work, and especially if it's really as a calling, move from the typical way we look about our work, which is what am I getting from my work, to this idea of what am I becoming as a result of my work. And that's a really important shift. If you can make the shift of from what am I getting, which is very much about, okay, that's a job. What am I mm-hmm. getting? You know, it's a barter relationship between you and the work. You know, how much money, how much status, how much, you know, what the kind of title, et cetera. But you move to the place of calling, you, you actually get less focused on what am I getting from it and more focused on, you know, what am I, not just what am I doing for the, for the world, but what am I becoming as a person, as a human being, as a result of this? And that's a profound question to ask and a hard one, frankly, for some people to actually hear because quite honestly, sometimes they look at their work and they realize, God, I'm just becoming a wreck. <laughs> I'm becoming a jerk. I'm becoming a really angry person. And it's like, okay. Just know that that's, that's what's going on here. And if that's, as long as you're conscious of it, then, you know, you can keep doing it. But frankly, the more conscious you get about the fact you're becoming an angry person, the harder it will be to continue to live that job. It's really powerful because we, we come up with these theories, whether we start them out when we're really young, okay, I'm going to go to this college and then I'm going to get this job and I want to marry this person. I'm going to have the kids. I'm going to do this whole plan. And then that's what's going to make me happy. And we'll talk about happiness in a right. second. And so we yep. have to wake up and, and actually check in. We have to come back to our experience and say, well... Is it working? Am I happy or yeah. am I, am I just becoming more of an angry dick? So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I didn't use that phrase in the book, but that's, that's not, absolutely true. That's not in the book. huh? Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah. Well, they would have edited it out. So, um, <laughs> 
Okay. Well, let's talk about so, happiness. That that's a good segue into sure. happiness. So, how, what's the equation for happiness? That's that's the big the big just being the a happy ring, dick. right? Um, if you had the choice between being a happy dick or an angry dick, you'll be a happy dick. Um, so, well, let me say, I, this one was fascinating and really fun because this was actually after my first equation, which is the despair equation. I I went on to learn this happiness equation. I went to Bhutan, which is this tiny little country that they call Shangri-La between China and India that for 40 years now has been studying their own gross national happiness index. So they've spent you know a lot of years trying mm-hmm. to understand the nature of happiness and the conditions that create it. And the United Nations has been there and spent a lot of time understanding it. And then I came back and worked with some happiness scholars. And what I learned is that the fastest way people are able to get to happiness is by means of expressing gratitude, practicing gratitude. It's, you know, in any, in any culture, whether it's in Bhutan, Buddhist culture, whether it's in the U.S., any kind of culture, the fastest way you're able to shift from wherever you are and to get into a place of happiness is to feel gratitude and then go out and express it. And so um, the equation uh, starts with the top of the equation is wanting what you have. When you want what you have, when you practice gratitude uh, for what you have in your life, including things that people have done for you, then it actually helps you get to a place of happiness. And it also, of course, creates this world where you know, we sort of mirror each other. And if you practice some gratitude out there, strangely enough, some of the gratitude may be coming back to you. Mm. So wanting what you have is in the top of the equation. The bottom of the equation, and this is sort of complicated, is having what you want. Now, I think you think that I just said exactly the same thing, but I didn't. But happiness is not about having what you want. It's about wanting what you have. So what does it mean to have what you want? Well, to have what you want is to pursue something that you desire. So, you know, and when you say, when I say that, it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> right. that's what we do in America. Right. You know, we are a culture of pursuing. In fact, the pursuit of happiness is in the Declaration of Independence. We pursue things. But what I want to make sure people understand is nothing wrong with pursuit. And I am a type A entrepreneur. I, you know, I, I go out and pursue. But be careful with pursuit. If you look in the dictionary under the word pursuit, in some dictionaries, it's defined as to chase with hostility. <laughs> so do we chase happiness with hostility? Well, we do. And what happens sometimes, and what happens is we get on what's called the hedonic treadmill, which is, you know, if you are constantly trying to live up to some ideal, whether it's keeping up with the Joneses next door, keeping up with your father's perspective on what you're supposed to actually do in your life, keeping up with your own goals and disappointments around, around those. There's a, a natural tendency, and there's actually also a natural tendency. Remember, you know, remember when, how beautiful your wife was when you got married and then you had your honeymoon, and then how would, how'd she look about four years later? <laughs> Not quite so good. You know, she changed so much. Or did your eyes change? Right. You know, she may not have changed much. Your eyes changed. And the truth is what we as hunters and gatherers as men have a tendency to do is we do actually sort of enjoy the pursuit. We sort of enjoy the hunting and gathering. Once we've gotten what we were trying to get, it no longer is valuable to us. And now we have to go look for the next shiny object. So what is the purpose of this conversation? The purpose of the conversation is to just recognize that pursuing gratification is fine, but you need to blend it also with practicing gratitude. It's impossible to do them simultaneously, and most of us don't do enough of the former. There's a, and for those of you who think, well, Chip's just some new age junkie, and that's why he's come up with this, I want to actually give you a quote from Socrates from 2,400 years ago. He said, 
in the in the context of talking about happiness. He said, "He who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have." Mm. <laughs> That's the equation. Right. He who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. Because it's so always going to be something. It's always going to be more money. It's, it's always exactly. going to be you know, more uh, a fitter body. It's, it, there's always something that we can add to it, right? We have a tendency to think that success will bring happiness, and there's so much evidence that the opposite is true. Happiness brings success. And there was a great uh, issue of Harvard Business Review, January, February issue, and, and the cover said, uh, I think the cover article is called The Value of Happiness. But then there are about six or seven articles inside about happiness and about how happiness is a great business principle and tool and business model for any company. And, and, you know, it profiled my buddy, Tony Shea from Zappos and his book, Delivering Happiness. So long story short is I just think people need to recognize that when we get very caught up on that treadmill and we think, if I get this, then I will get that. We are, it's part of how we are built and wired and that's fine, but it's a slippery slope. And in order to occasionally have a moment of happiness. You need to spend some time on the gratitude side as well. I just, I, I love it. I, I, you know, I can remember my own personal stories of when I first got on this whole personal development thing years ago. And, and suddenly this is like, wow, I've got so much potential and I'm not measuring up. I was miserable. <laughs> it's like on this yeah. path to be happier yeah. and everything. And it just became this whole new mountain for me to climb. Uh, and that made me miserable. And I know there's guys that fall into this trap is, you know, what is the new man in this, even just in our little corner over here, um, of just measuring, trying to measure up to something that it's like, it doesn't exist. It's not going to bring greater happiness. As long as you keep chasing this thing, you're putting it up on the mountain and you're not being thankful for what you've got already. Um, it, it's so simple, but the fact is, is that you're right. We haven't been trained how to do both. We don't really know how to, to, how to, how to really be grateful for what we've got and including our desire to like, you know, it'd be great in this. How about a little garlic? Have a little butter that, Oh yeah, that'd be great too. Let's try it that way next time. And that, and that makes it fun. Right. Well, I think, you know, you've got it right. I mean, this is, it's a little bit of a recipe, you know, this is, these are equations or they could be ingredients or, you know, if you're a chef out there, they're a recipe. And what's the right, right recipe? And rarely is there a recipe that has only one ingredient. It's a mixture of things. And just the right mixture actually makes for a better meal. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, typically I ask the guests around this time, it's like, what's the one thing that the listener can do today that's going to make a big impact on his life? I'm assuming you're going to say gratitude or prove me wrong. Is that? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think gratitude is something that, um, and I remember I, I call it practicing gratitude and the bottom of the equation is sort of pursuing gratification. Mm-hmm. It, it's not a matter of just sort of like saying, I'll, I'll do gratitude when I'm feeling it. No, actually you have to sort of practice it a little bit. You have to actually say for me in the context of business, I, I had a habit that I created, which is um, every day I would, practice gratitude at a minimum of twice to somebody, to people within my company, um, face to face and, and, you know, genuine and, and, you know, unexpected form of gratitude. And so the practice of doing it got me to a place where it became a habit. And then as it became a habit, it was a really great piece of my leadership skills. So, you know, learning how to make it a habit is the first step. I love you. It's just a muscle to train, right? Maybe it's just a, it's just atrophied. We haven't yeah. used it and, and, but we can't yeah. train this muscle and, and bring that online and, and have that, um, have that in the mix as well as we go out and have fun and, and pursue things, uh, in life, uh, not let it drag us down and not put our happiness out there, you know, beyond our means, beyond our grasp and, and be something that we'll never have. 
Here are the big takeaways from this talk with Chip Conley. Number one, imagine a color wheel is your emotional world. When you combine certain emotions, you create new ones. This is the premise behind Chip's emotional equations. Once you're able to identify what you're feeling, you can break it down into simpler elements and then address them. Number two, as men, we tend to be confused by our emotions, and when things get intense, we have a tendency to check out, numb out, or distract ourselves. But here's the problem. By numbing out, we also miss out on what we really want to feel. Passion, desire, happiness, fulfillment, connection, freedom. You name it. By turning one off, you turn them all off. This also impacts your relationships with others, most notably your ability to be attractive to other women. Who wants to date a shell of a man? Number three, if you're feeling something and it isn't pleasurable, simply start with where you're feeling it. Is it in your gut, in your throat, your jaw, your hands? They're called feelings for a reason, so hone in on where the feeling is and you'll be empowered to respond. Number four, Chip says that simply naming what we're feeling makes a huge impact. So much of the time, we're bottling it up. We don't want to admit that we're hurt, angry, sad, or even turned on. It's like we're a pot of hot water on the stove. Keeping the lid on increases the pressure, and as a result, our boiling point is reached much faster. So take the lid off. Embrace it. Okay, I'm pissed. I'm hurt. I'm anxious. I'm confused. Whatever you find, be willing to simply state what you're actually feeling. This alone will create a shift. Number five, your calling doesn't have to pay the bills, so take the pressure off. Simply experiment and keep trying things until you find what you do love to do. Your job can simply be a means to support yourself in doing this. Number six, a workaholic and a guy expressing his calling may look the same on the outside. However, the workaholic is compulsive. He's running away from something. He's drained by it. The guy with the calling, he's fueled by his work. It's an expression of who he is. So don't bullshit yourself if you're a workaholic. Balance out your life with things that rejuvenate you. Be willing to confront the thing you're avoiding. And don't wait until your heart stops one day to make the change. Number seven, speaking of work, what are you as a result of your work? A better man, energized, satisfied, grateful, or are you an angry dick? If so, figure out what you can influence to make a shift. Don't play the powerless victim role. Number eight, if you're feeling anxious, clarify what you do and don't know, and then clarify what you can and cannot influence. This will get your brain out of the tailspin and help you see actions that you can take to bring more clarity and make a shift. Be willing to go into the uncertainty or to take the scary action. Avoiding this is most likely the root of your anxiety. Number nine, our culture celebrates pursuing happiness. It's even in our U.S. Constitution. However, the easiest way to experience true satisfaction is to develop the practice of gratitude. Make the time to be grateful for what you do have, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant. Without gratitude for what you do have, the pursuit or chase for gratification only leads to misery. And number 10, we've talked about this before in The New Man, but it bears repeating. Your success, whatever that means, is a product of your happiness. Your success is a product of your happiness. Too many of us have flipped the script. We're waiting for that job or that special person or whatever to come along before we give ourselves permission to do the things we love. And that'll make you miserable. Find ways to do what you love every day. Find ways to have a positive impact on others every day. Take the time to express gratitude for what you do have every day. You'll be surprised at how much just a little bit of these actions will make a big change in your experience of life. 
Stop waiting to get something before you can give to yourself. So, Chip, tell us where we can get emotional equations. You know, you can go to emotionalequations.com, which is the website for the book, and you can learn more about it there, and you can actually order it there. You can go to you know local bookstore or uh, Amazon, of course, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, to find it as well. But the, the best thing to do is to learn more about the book is just to go to the emotionalequations.com website. There's also an Emotional Equations Facebook page as well. Beautiful. Chip, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I think that this it's such a it can be such a really confusing conversation for guys to even, oh, we're gonna talk about our emotions. Like they, there's this even this shame around it. And you've right. brought it into this realm of like, well, let's let's check it out. What are these things? Let's let's demystify them and, and kind of take the stigma out of it for sure. To me, I, I just feel like the real power in our lives comes when we embrace the emotional world. It's where we get fired up about things, it's where we get excited where we feel desire. And, and to me, that's what makes life worth living is, is, is having those experiences. That's what we ultimately want when we make enough money or have this girl or that. We want that experience at the end of the day. So uh, if we're mute to our experiences, then we miss out on that. So I really appreciate you connecting the dots and making it easier for us. Thank you so much. I, I wish you all the best, Trip, and I and, uh, just wish all the best to everybody out there on your audience. There's so much more to The New Man than these interviews. So visit thenewmanpodcast.com and join the mailing list so you never miss another update. Thanks for listening.